Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. And you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face to face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Tom Bai founded the Drake Magazine in 1998, and he has grown it to be one of the most respected magazines in the industry. With some of the finest fishing writers, it's not hard to see why. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Tom to learn more about the evolution of his career, how he's managed to keep his privacy while growing the Drake as a brand, and his infamous Drake Forum Board. I was born in Newburgh, Oregon, which is the Willamette Valley, and it's wine country. It wasn't really wine country at the time. There was one or two vineyards out there, but now it's really kind of a destination place, which I'm a little embarrassed that I'm not more of a wine expert because that's kind of, when people hear that now, they think, oh, what, what's your favorite Pinot or whatever, but it's a very neat little area. You're like the, the Pinot? Exactly. Is that what it's called, Pinot? <laughs> exactly. The Willamette River? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's where I grew up. The town's called Newburgh. It was about uh, eight miles outside of town on a farm that was called Ribbon Ridge, and that's now its own, I think it's called ASA or whatever, the agricultural designation for that particular grape or wine or whatever. So it's a really, it was an absolute great childhood. I mean, parents awesome, on a farm, 37 acres, what more could you ask for as a little boy, like what, room to play. Was it like a proper farm where you had to go collect eggs? Uh, no, it was kind of halfway. Mom and dad both had other jobs, but... My dad fought in Korea, and after the Korean War, he went straight to Alaska and was a commercial longliner for halibut in a little tiny town called Pelican. And uh, he just, that 
generation of depression era savers. He saved every dime he ever had. Um, you know, he didn't go to college, he didn't go to high school, but he saved his money from that commercial fishing, came down, bought this farm, and I guess it would have been 64 or some early 60s in there. And um, that's just a tremendous place to grow up. I mean, that was, I, for the things that I like in my life and fishing being a big part of that, we were close enough to the coast range that we could hit a lot of those coastal rivers, but we were hitting them up high, like for trout and mm-hmm. steelhead and stuff. Um, we didn't really get down into the fishing in that coastal range until I was deeper into high school and stuff like that. Right. But just a really neat uh, part of Oregon. Was your dad into hunting? No. My dad wasn't into anything for fun, really. Another one of those kind of like, uh, you know, we'd go out and I shouldn't say that. He enjoyed fishing, but like like a lot of guides, I would get asked by my clients, oh, did you learn to fly fish from your grandfather or your father? Like, <laughs> yeah. My dad would not pay this much for a month of fishing. Like He thought <laughs> fly fishing was just totally dumb. Okay. Um, so, but, so he was uh, like a like a practical, practical. exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. he'd shoot things, but it was always like when we went fishing, we went and collected a load of wood first. That was how he justified. I like your dad's style, and yeah. a lot of that is being a property owner, totally. Because you wake up and it, it, you're not thinking fun. Like right. my husband always kind of floats in for his four weeks up north. Right. <laughs> I'm like, I live there. I'm like, what do you think you're doing? There's work to be done around here. Right. I need you to go pump water. I need you to chop wood. Like, hey, pick blackberry, it's whatever. Time for I mean, there's fun right, right now, <laughs> and it, you know, and when he did take a vacation, it was just to work on the farm. So, but it was we had cows. For food, you know, my mom used to joke because they both passed away in 2004 or oh. 2014, rather. Oh my god! Like so four months sorry. of each other. It was a, it was a, that was a rough year. But mom used to hear people talk about organic gardening, and she was just like, "We just called it gardening, yeah, like, or farming, you know, whatever <laughs> right. organic farm. I guess we were organic farmer." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about siblings? Uh, one sister. Karen, when she lives up in Portland, two nieces and a nephew. Uh, but we are we're both adopted. So oh, yeah, I did not know that. Yes. We uh, we what's the story behind that? I did. I, your dad was into that. Was okay with that? Uh, yeah, I, that sounds I, really insensitive. It's just I'm trying to paint a picture of your father in my head and right. Tell tell me the story about that. Well, uh, so mo- mom and dad were living in this little uh, town of Pelican, and they lived for a couple of years in Juneau while I was doing the fishing. And they couldn't get pregnant. I'm not sure which one, mm-hmm. but so mom really wanted to adopt. And I think, I don't know the story 100%, but I think it was that the Catholic adoption services needed, they wouldn't allow you to, to adopt and have dad leave and go up by himself and work however long the howlet season was and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why they left Alaska. Dad probably would have never left, basically. Dad, but they had they had relatives, other relatives in Oregon. Um, but so they adopted, it was all mom, like dad, I think was indifferent. He probably wasn't super excited to have kids, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, talking to him now, but, uh, he must've adored your mom. He would have adored your mom. My mom and dad were great. They got along great. Uh, I got really, really lucky with parents. I mean, they're, those are great. And they probably never made 30 grand together between i mean you you see how what they did with their earnings and it's like it's super super impressive uh tell me your story sorry i cut you off 
Oh, no. So just uh, dad, when he was on hospice, right? And uh, I just had more conversations with him toward the end of his life than any we never. He wasn't a big talker ever. But one of the things he said was that uh, he was trying to decide with my mom whether to go buy two cows or have my sister. <laughs> I don't know if he's really thinking really clearly, but he was like, I'm just so so glad we got you two. <laughs> it's just funny. The things that, yeah, instead of two cows. Like that was, it was a big debate. You know, thanks, but, Dad. Yeah, thanks, Dad. I'm, I'm glad. But, I mean, that's just the kind of guy, you know, one of my friends would ask my mom and dad about, how they met, and dad would give some short story and then say, I worked out okay, I guess. My mom's like, <laughs> worked out okay, I guess. I mean, it, it's, it was crazy. She was so young. Dad was 10 years older than her, okay. and they left Minnesota. They're both from Minnesota. So I, oh, I have a ton of cousins in, throughout the whole state of Minnesota, both Catholic families, yeah. families. And uh, she got in a car with my dad. They got married like three weeks later and drove to Alaska. She'd never left Minnesota in her life. She's like 22 years old. And she ends up in not just Alaska, but Pelicans, tiny little, like, 80 people maybe live there still. But She sounds like a good sport. Yeah, she's so great. were you a baby when you were adopted? Uh, yeah, it was like, I don't know, a couple weeks or something like that. And my friends and women I've dated, they've always been much more interested in finding out my real parents than my natural parents, however you want to put it, mm-hmm. than I have. Mm-hmm. I've never cared. I mean, when mom and dad were alive... Maybe I was, I didn't want to offend mom or dad. They are my parents and they couldn't have asked for better ones. And I've just never, it's, some people are just like, how can you not? I'd be dying to find out. And I just, if I had a list of my thousand most concerning, it wouldn't even be on it. Yeah. You know, and maybe I someday I'll look, but I doubt it. I actually oh, wasn't yeah. even going to ask you about it because the way I say, I don't know, maybe I'm insensitive to that. I just, or maybe I'm really sensitive to that, actually. I think that if, if, they're your parents. Like they're your parents. Mm-hmm. I just either for a while there, I wanted to have one and adopt one. I still would like to have one and, ad- and adopt one. Charles is right. not open to it, but I don't know. I, I don't think I'd be offended if my if my child wanted to find out their birth parents. But I'd, I kind of have a big like, well, why? Oh, my mom. <laughs> she she was super sensitive and just the sweetest lady. But she said to my sister and I both one time, like if you, if either of you want to go, you know, find out who your real parents were. I'm just. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> my sister and I are looking at each other like no, we don't care. No, mom. it's all good, mom. Yeah, don't you, worry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so, so how did you get into? Where does the fishing enter your life? Uh, super young. So I had a lot of cousins, and another great thing about the childhood, I always had other kids our age around family, and uh, we would spend every Memorial weekend on the Upper Nestucca River, which is a North Coast Oregon stream, but. Uh, like I was saying, not down where most people do their steelheading, pretty far up. But that was opening day of trout season, you know, the, the typical <laughs> truck. They knew when the hatcher truck was coming, so and we'd spend, that would be spring, so in like Memorial weekend. And then Labor Day weekend, we'd be on the Deschutes fishing for steelhead. And none of this was you say fishing. we, this is family? Family, yeah. And I'm I mean, assuming camping. this is to take home. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I can't imagine yeah. your family being like, oh, we're going to just release this fish back into the wild. Oh, God, no. I mean, probably didn't even follow the rules when they were established. But it was right about that time when they were, you know, you couldn't keep, I don't know, it was one or two fish probably, you know. and uh, But I don't think yet you had to 
release all the wild ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like... Let's date you here. How old are you? 70. I'm 52. I was just sort of 70. No, he's... Yeah, he's gay. <laughs> but you are... But still, though, you are 52. I am. You're a lot... I think you're older than people realize because you don't look 52. Oh, thank you. Uh, but if you really don't count fishing against your years, then I figure... I'm actually much, much younger. <laughs> That's what I've convinced myself. That's what you tell yourself. Right. Um, okay. So from there then, I'm assuming you were a normal kid in high school? Um, yes. Tons of friends in sports. The only real drama in high school is that I broke my left femur in a motorcycle accident. Oh. And it was a big deal because I started high school on crutches and I was oh. in, this is when they still did body casts. I was in a body cast for five weeks, and then it was supposed to be for six weeks, and at five weeks it wasn't healing right, and they had to go in and re-break it and put me in traction for eight weeks. Fifteen years old, and I was on my back all summer long. Oh, my God. So it was bad. It was just broken up really, really high, and I've seen those injuries now. I mean, they go in there and throw a couple screws, and it's done, but Mm -hmm, this was 81 or whatever. That's what they did, and that was... uh, I mean, I wasn't some outstanding athlete, probably not going to make it to the NBA anyway, but, <laughs> but the, the, it did set me back at a time when I was I really, really enjoyed sports, and that's a pretty crucial time for learning your ninth grade, and I couldn't participate. And so that definitely played a big role in the fishing. I mean, I always fish, but then I, I had to sit out some sports seasons, and I fish a lot more. In high school, we we drove every weekend to the Oregon coast, and that's where we spent Saturdays and Sundays. And that we being like a group of three or four friends of mine. I'm assuming you started with conventional gear? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The three places we fished most when I was little was the Oregon coast, the Deschutes, and the Wallawas, which is this wilderness area in northeastern Oregon that's really, really cool. And uh, I go back there now and float some of those rivers that are in there, but at that time it was camping and then backpacking up into the high country. So... Starting third, fourth, fifth grade, I was fishing with flies, but it was a bobber on a spinning rod, you know. So, so that was as close as I came to fly fishing until I was freshman year in college. Okay, so what yeah. happens then? Um, well, I did uh, after high school. I went to the army, so I was in Germany for two years in the army, and then I came back from army and went to college. Part of it was just a financial decision, right? And uh, I got to go to Europe for two years and. I wasn't a great student. I was a good student. I I, I did really well in the subjects I cared about, <laughs> and um, which was were... rather dismissive. I was writing all the way back then. You know, I had a column in high school. I've always known I was going to be a writer. I feel very lucky in that. I, I don't think I realized how rare that is to know that early. And I was journalism major in college, and but I needed to probably take that break from school. Like I don't. If I would have went straight. After high school, I might have gone to Alaska for a summer and never come back or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a, it was a great experience. It wasn't uh, there was nothing really happening in active war. I wasn't in any kind of combat zone. There was a lot of terrorism taking place at that time. It just hadn't come to America yet, so there mm-hmm. was that. But for the most part, we just went to discotheques. Okay, <laughs> but you would have learned. You would have learned. At- you know, having a schedule, you would have learned how to oh, all be. That. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. um, uh, very much that. Uh, and I was one step above infantry, maybe. I, I fired a, it's called a Stinger missile system from a shoulder fired anti aircraft, which was interesting. And I feel like the military is just a lot more in the culture now, even like people are more interested in it now than 
back then. Like nobody really is just, oh, it's just going doing money for school, right? But a lot of people have heard of that weapon because Tom Hanks was in that movie where they were shipping them to Iran. The whole Iran Contra thing, that's the weapons that they were using when they were when the U.S. was shipping those down to Central America. But it was a great experience. And it, 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 like you said, it did allow me to learn about scheduling and be on time and do it all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. But I wrestled in high school, too. So like as far as the physical aspect of it, it wasn't even as hard as that. How did you handle authority? Uh, I was fine with authority. I was, I, you know, I grew up in a house where I didn't talk back to my dad. <laughs> like, no and when I, you know, some of my friends were like the stuff they'd say to the dad. I'm like, whoa. You get backhanded <laughs> yeah, for that? No way that was going to happen. You know, I mean, they weren't like, you know, in any way physical, but it was just, I'm adopted. He was six, three, like, okay. yeah, not a small dude. He just <laughs> didn't yeah, go there. Just don't mess with that. Exactly. Exactly. But it was great. And it, I think culturally really was some of the most I got out of it. I mean, mm. uh, the Willamette Valley was a pretty white, you know, uh, and the army exposes you to all cultures. And I think that was really good for me, not to mention just being in Europe and things like that. When you came back, yes, you went to college? Yeah, I went straight. Like a month after I got back, I started Oregon State. Journalism? Uh, yes. And what was the big picture? What were you hoping to do? Probably be a sports writer. I thought oh, about that okay. a lot, but I didn't know really if I could make a living as fishing writer, but I definitely knew even then that that was something that I wanted to do. I mean, ninth grade, I wrote a paper saying that I want to be a outdoor like fishing writer or whatever. Yeah. Just didn't know the, the path to it. So your ambition was never to be rich? Uh, no. It couldn't have not. been if your head was I wasn't there. even sure if I knew really what rich was. I mean, it was a very different, different ways to achieve that back then. Like looking, it was just, you go get a job and you work. You work, <laughs> you yeah. know, I, but I, I didn't know, like I didn't come from an entrepreneurial family or anything like that. I mean, without jumping ahead to the magazine, I created Drake mostly to have something to put my writing in. It wasn't business. <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't come at it from a way to make a bunch of money. <laughs> no, and I didn't think you did. And it shows through in, in the work, which of course we're obviously going to dive into. But okay, so then, you know, if we're moving up your timeline, fly fishing, enter fly fishing. How does that happen? Um, so that was... Uh, in college, I, I think I'd, I started and I had done it a couple times, maybe even before then. But I just, on those trips on the Deschutes, when everybody was throwing gear, I would see fly fishers. Never really on the coast. Nobody fly fished for steel, especially winter steelhead right. in the 80s. I mean, it just, that's a much more recent thing. Mm-hmm. Not like BC, where you have this tradition of it, you know. Well, in the 70s, years. they were still saying that it was impossible. Exactly. And I in mean, the 80s, it was possible, but it wasn't, it definitely, it, yeah, it's totally different yeah, now. The lines, all that, that was, you were light years away from it at that time. But Oregon did have, I mean, the North Umqua is one of the oldest fly fishing only stretches. And, and Oregon, if you split it in half, the eastern half of the state is, like, if you... If there's 10 fishermen over there, seven of them are going to be fly fishermen. On the coast, it's like one out of 20. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're there to catch big Chinook and fly fish and stuff. But like Denver, Colorado, probably seven out of 10 are also fly fishermen. But it wasn't a huge culture in Oregon. But I picked it up from looking at the Deschutes, did, uh, started it probably my sophomore year. So one of the good things about going to the Army is almost 21 by the time I started college. So legal to drink. Uh, had a little bit more money than some of the other people and could uh, take off and do the fishing. And as close to there, close to Oregon State, was some coastal creeks that flowed down the 
not into the ocean, but down the east flank of the of the coast range mm-hmm. uh, and into the valley there. And that's I that's really where I started casting a fly, and then the Metolius River, which mm-hmm. you've heard of, mm-hmm. uh, and the Deschutes were the first places that I had any sort of success with it. <laughs> and that was like sophomore year of college. What was so intriguing about fly oh, fishing? Oh, it's just uh, it just felt so much more fun to do. I mean, I, I, I compare it a lot to telemark skiing. It, it just is a, there's something about the feel of the cast and the visual aspect. And I, I, I'm definitely not one of those people that never look back. And I mean, I still have gear rods and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and there's sometimes it just makes more sense, but I really, really preferred the fly fishing right away mm-hmm. and dove in. Did you spend winters skiing and snowboarding? Uh, I did. I mean, that was, uh, I was in the ski industry for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Um, so through high school, Oregon state, after Oregon state, I went, moved to Arizona. I was there for about a year and a half. I managed an outdoor store down there and did a lot of bass fishing and things like that. Still kind of. Why there though? Why Arizona? Uh, my sister lived there. Oh, okay. And like a lot of kids that grew up in Oregon, just want to go somewhere it was warm. Sure. Uh, but I spent one summer there and that was it. Okay. Uh, (laughs) And I started, I worked in a fly shop there just briefly, just a few weeks, but that person who owned the fly shop was from Jackson Hole. And that's kind of, even though I grew up knowing about it as a skier, I wasn't a big skier in high school, but I moved to Jackson for the summertime. I I moved there from Arizona. So Arizona to Jackson. That was in May of 92, and I was a a rafting guide. Oh, cool. And then uh, I started that next year, maybe 94, more full-time splitting like i would i raft guided the whole time i was up there until the river was clear enough to fish which was the way to do it and would still recommend anybody else was up there to do i mean a year like this they had a heavy snow and it's it's clear ish the snake i'm talking about mm-hmm. uh that was how those big years were so rather than spend two months having to drive over to the henry's fork or down the green or you know put all these miles on your car i just rafted and there's also, yes, you can start guiding. And I was just going to say, did you start guiding after that? Uh, yes. But I would be, there's guiding and then there's guiding with a clear conscience, right? <laughs> I mean, you could be out there saying you're going to catch fish. Yeah. But I could I could raft until I felt like it was, you know, the fishing was good. And then all through end of July, August, September, and end of October. So that was uh, that was my guiding situation up there. But I did a lot in Jackson. Who did you guide for? I started with West Bank Anglers, and really it was with them the whole time, but they also started running trips for Grand Teton Lodge Company, and that's who I rafted for. So um, oh, when I... tie-in. Yeah. So when I was... I lived in the park up until I got a dog, and so mm. uh, when I could do trips for the Lodge Company, it was on... I think I was sorry. It was on... Lodge company's permit, but it was through West Bank Anglers. They didn't promote the fly fishing up there. They were just one of those lodges that had the permits and didn't do much with it. And so then I would be able to stay up in uh, Grand Teton National Park and run those trips from up there without having to come all the way down into town. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Jackson. But I, it's, I, I'm not, but I can. Okay. I, it makes sense. So, but when you had the dog, what was yeah. the deal? You just couldn't have dogs in the park. Yeah, you couldn't live in their employee housing with the dog. So, what was your dog's name? Trask. <laughs> He has a okay, column in Got it. Well, that's why I was asking. I figured <laughs> yeah. as much. I figured that's yeah. probably... And Trask is a river on the Oregon coast that is a you know, popular steelhead river, and that's where that name comes from. How many years did you guide for? A uh, total of seven summers, eight count. I went back up there in 2000. 
four when I was making that feeding time fly fishing movie. Right. Now we went up there to just work for a couple of weeks and as often happens, I was up there for almost three months. So it's not, it's not like you had a real, it's not like you had a, did, did you have a real job and you guided on the side? Oh yeah. Or? I left Arizona as a mortgage loan officer. You did? Yes. Why? I mean, well, I know why, but... Why is a great question. I, well, part of it, I <laughs> well, think... you had to make money, I'm sure. I did. I did. But it was... Uh, one of the things I did in college was I had a couple of great internships in Portland. One summer was with Portland General Electric, who owns and runs a couple of the dams on the Columbia. I learned a lot about that sort of thing. But mostly just that was a big private company, so I got that view. The next summer... Uh, I worked as an intern for TriMet, the public transportation system. So just being able to see those two companies. And then when I went down to Arizona, I basically got on the phone and called PR firms until one of them would hire me and one did for like five bucks an hour. I just wanted to see whether that was something that I would be interested in doing. It seemed like it would pay more and there was no real writing gigs. So I did. I worked for a couple of different PR firms down there. But that was... Short-lived. Did you feel like you had to? I mean, did you feel like for your parents you had to have a real you had to have a real job and a nine to five? Yeah, but not my parents weren't like that. Like as far as expectations go, were Um, your expectations like that though for yourself? Mine were yes. Mom and dad, as long as I wasn't asking them for money, they felt like I was doing okay. But there was no like uh, they were proud of me if I went in the army, and they were just they were you know. They didn't. I didn't have to do any certain thing for them. They allowed me freedom to do that. It was great. But it was. Uh, I was just testing the waters of what I wanted to do. The mortgage loan officer job was for money, and I was there three months, maybe four months, and I was like, now I know exactly what I don't want to do. Okay, <laughs> is any world like this? And I never have had a real. I mean, I've had. I was an editor of Powder Magazine for three years, and I had a job at Steam. Those are real jobs, but they aren't nine-to-five suit and tie. I mean, it was horrible, and I was good at it. I can sell stuff, but I was selling really expensive money. These were people that were—you're selling them a third mortgage when they don't—they shouldn't be Did you feel good about it? You kind of felt good about it. No, no, no. You have to feel—I'd come back to my boss, and I'd be like— but they really shouldn't do this. They've got this house paid off, and she would just be so mad. Like, you what? You're not supposed to think like that. You're supposed to be a selling that, yeah. telling why. So it did not sit well with me at all. But I did learn a bit about mortgages, and and I mean, it, well, it, and it, careers. Yeah, it was amazing to me. Uh, people would call in, and smart people that didn't. You could tell from the conversation they had no idea the difference between mortgage and uh, in their on their mortgage between principal and interest. These are successful business people, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh, well, I can't be buying them, and I can't whatever. I'm making one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year." It's like, "Yeah, but you're spending one hundred thirty thousand dollars a year." I'm looking at your. I mean, it, it, that part of it I learned a lot about. Okay, so you went from working at a at a sh- at an outdoor store in Arizona to yeah. having, you know, the quote unquote real job. And then also you're spending your time being a rafting guide, a fishing guide, and you're kind of writing freelance. Was that how you made your money for like seven years? Um I had kept a journal, I always just kinda of wrote, but I'd never tried to sell anything before. And I started with powder. And that was uh I mean I had maybe a couple other random things published in local papers or whatever, but I got um this is like Probably winter of 94. Okay. But um, actually, I, my first paying gig was as a 
outdoors columnist in the Jackson Hole newspaper. So that was October of 93. I got paid like 50 bucks or something for, um, but between all that, you had to actually pay the bills and that wasn't going to do. So I, like most people in those towns, I had at least two, sometimes three jobs. I mean, uh, I worked construction that first winter. We built the brew pub, which is kind of cool because you can go back and actually have a drink in this thing that you had. Yeah. But construction's hard enough. And then in the middle of the winter, just, I mean, I, I did enjoy it, but I wasn't that good at it. I'm not fast. I'm not really super skilled in any of those things. I was a good assistant, but I, uh, I got my first true salaried writing gig after doing the column for a couple of years. They, Jackson Hole guy had hired me as the sports editor. Oh. Yeah. So that's what I did. But it, even that didn't pay. Like I was still raft guiding and still fish guiding. So that was, did full-time guiding those first couple of years, then had the, the newspaper gig. And I was allowed the freedom to run quite a few trips. And I knew I could do that job as well. But the optics of where's Tom when everybody else is in there working, you know. So, but that, that was a great job. And I learned, you know, columnist is a certain style of writing that, first person and then the the reporting of being a sports writer i mean the title is sports editor it just means you wrote everything that was in there it's totally different writing totally yeah. I, I and i remember when i first made the decision i was going to learn how to write and i'm i mean it's an ever everyday decision right you're constantly mm-hmm. learning but i read was is it william zinser mm-hmm. um how to um, on writing well, I think it is. Yes. And I realized, wow, there really is a different way to write, you know, advertisements versus announcements versus, I don't know, just uh, whatever. The, totally. every, everything's different. So did you ever take it upon yourself to study writing? Yeah, and still do. All Every the time. Day. Yeah. I mean, all those sorts of books. Sometimes the readers don't know the difference between what is an editorial, you know. I mean, I, I would get letters. If you want to write I want to write something for the paper, keep your opinion out of it. I'm like, well, my picture is there. It's called the opinion page. I mean, but, uh, but no, I think, uh, there's, if you're going to be a modern writer, especially in the situation where I have a magazine like that, you better have a breadth of, I mean, I'm not a fiction guy. I can edit it. It's not my first choice, but I, I've never tried to write fiction, but every kind of, Profiles or deeply researched investigative reporting, even your own first person travel pieces, you need to bring those reporting skills and interviewing skills. And, you know, it's hard. You've got to ask the right questions to get people to say something worthwhile. And that is probably one of the least common skills. I mean, that there are a lot of people who are very talented writers. And I think some of the best writing in the world probably never sees print. You know, it's in the bedside journal somewhere. And that was the whole idea behind the Tippett's essay section in the Drake. It was that that kind of writing I knew was out there. And it's it allows the first-time writers who maybe just have that one great story to get in there. And mm-hmm. it also allows me to have the, the Tom McGuane's and the people who are expensive – and that's a short enough piece that, you know, if I have to pay a buck a word or more than that, I'm mm-hmm. I can afford to do it rather than if they came to me with a four thousand word story that might be a little <laughs> right. more difficult. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So working at Powder Magazine, I, I always found Powder Magazine super cool. Being in BC, obviously we had it on our shelves. We love BC. Yeah. Powder Magazine. <laughs> Fantastic magazine. Yes. And, and it's actually not surprising knowing yeah. that about your past and seeing the Drake. It makes perfect sense. But I've always wondered how that evolution happened. Would you walk me through that? Sure. The freelance writing with Powder, a lot of that came, the opportunity to write there came because I was living in Jackson at an incredible time to be living in Jackson. I mean, Tommy Moe had just moved to town. Uh, TGR was just starting to put their films out. This is, you know, 1996, 1997. Doug Coombs lived there. It was a very, it was the place to be in the lower 48. He was just starting his heli operations up in Alaska and things like that. So they came to me a lot because I was there, uh-huh. you know. Um, but you've got to deliver on the, but certainly I could have had the same skills. I'm living in Iowa and I would not have gotten these opportunities that I got at Powder. So some of that is just luck and timing and being in the right place and then delivering when it, when you need to, right? Mm-hmm. So that was the freelancing. But my first job as uh, editorially was at Paddler magazine. And that was a whitewater kayaking primarily, but also rafting, canoeing based on steamboat. So when I left, I left Jackson in 99 and moved to uh, Steamboat and worked for Paddler Magazine first. That was two years there. All this time, I'm still contributing to Powder. But what was funny is that there was another editor at the opposing newspaper. There was Jackson Hole News and Jackson Hole Guide. And the sports editor there was a guy named Porter Fox, who has become a really talented writer and a Wrote a great book on global warming and has been publishing a lot of big magazines and things like that. But at the time, we were supposed to not like each other. We were two competing newspapers. But instead, we did what like smart siblings do, and we kind of teamed up. I was like, hey, man, did you go to that girls' basketball game last night? <laughs> I mean, it was so bad, but we, we kind of helped each other out. Yeah. And in that mindset, like if once our editor found out we were in so much trouble, but we did team up and walk into... Jackson Hole and get ourselves a season pass, which at that time they made you like go and get a ticket or something every day you want to go. Oh, we were out there all the time. So when it came to getting our first job, Porter was being interviewed for the paddler job. And the guy who was the editor at Powder at the time was wanting to hire me. But there was no way at that time I was going to leave Jackson and go straight to Southern California. I just couldn't fathom it. I was much more willing to make a move. I didn't want to leave Jackson ever. Probably never would have in my life had I been able to afford a home there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had started the Drake at this point. I started it that year before in 1998. Oh, Whoa, okay. But I'd never set foot in 
a newsroom. I, I, I started the Drake and had it printed at the newspaper where I work. The first two issues were newsprint on the inside. I was going to say, so not printed as a magazine. It was. It had a glossy cover. It was a magazine. Oh, it was. Okay. Right. But it wasn't, I mean, those small scale presses, I, I did print 5,000 copies at first. How many pages? Issue. It was 32 pages so a proper magazine it was it was what Um, do you mean by newsprint am i just ignorant to this no it was like like thicker than a regular newspaper but it was the the stock was not the glossy magazine Uh, stock okay okay just the out it was just like newsprint newspaper got it just cheap as i could do it basically for sure five grand right so we i did that but i didn't and you asked or people often ask well what you what was your goal or what you you know what was my vision and yeah. it was if anything at that point it was like maybe this will help me get a job at a real magazine and oh. it did but i didn't really know at that time whether i would keep doing the drake or not was it all of your writing in it and uh no no i had a few things in there but i had i'd spent a lot of time rounding up really really good stuff yeah, yeah i was like several years to put on my first one. Oh, okay you okay. know so, so that makes yeah. sense yeah. uh including um by far the most meaningful piece to me was this speech that David James Duncan had given to the Portland Anglers Club, mm-hmm. but he'd never run it anywhere. I mean, there was like some local Portland something, because I, I, I had seen it, but I wrote to him and asked him if I could run it in the Drake, and he said yes. And to this day, we have a great relationship, but he, he uh, was hugely influential with my writing, and I like every kid especially west coast kid read the river wide and thought it was fantastic and mm-hmm. so um but getting that yes from him was a big very motivating to me but okay i'm actually gonna do this but that led to me getting that job at at paddler and i wasn't a big kayaker but i had done a lot of rafting and um and so i had two years there but it was a another ski town it wasn't the same as jackson but i loved steamboat and still do but the after two years there, um, so I took basically what happened is Porter and I were doing these interviews and we took each other's job. Okay. None of that story. He ended up going out to Powder and I went to Paddler and he'd been interviewing for, we'd each been interviewing for the other one, but it just made it, it was just a better fit. But did you end up at Powder? I did. Okay. I, did. I left Paddler after two years, uh-huh. moved to Boulder, Colorado, and was a senior editor at Skiing Magazine, oh. uh, which was a very corporate time inc big i mean everybody that was there they had just moved out a few years earlier from manhattan so to everyone there boulder was this cute little town so quaint to me is 150,000. i moved there from jackson i just thought whoa this is like big city Yeah. yeah um but it was great training they had really really great editors somebody came in there right after i got hired and fired almost everybody there except for myself and a a couple other people and and uh it was good though it kind of needed to happen and hired a bunch of people from outside that just really helped my editing getting to learn from really really good editors but skiing magazine just wasn't that cool it wasn't what people in ski towns read it was what my friends who go on a week vacation or you know ski on the weekends read but it was a you know they they paid well and Boulder was a lot better than Southern California. So I did that for, I was there for two years and I stayed in Boulder one more year to make feeding time, which was a fly fishing movie, hour long, (laughs) poorly done because I didn't know what I was doing really. But it was certainly the first one of that to try to 
be like the ski movie style. Right? I have to. I have got to track it down. I've not seen it. You'll be kind of disappointed, but as people love to tell me, they're like, it is absolutely the best worst movie out there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just because it's fun. So Noah, do you know Noah is he? He he was uh, in this movie Beyond the Horizon. He's been in a couple. He guides now and come talk and stuff like that. Anyway, big dude. He's in Feeding Time as a seven year old. I guided his dad. Oh my in god, Jackson. ancient. Okay, yeah. yeah. So it was, it was funny, but that was. Uh, I was able to do that in part because that last year I was at skiing, I was publishing the Drake, and I wrote a coffee table book on Steamboat. So really worked hard that last year in order to save enough money to make this fly fishing movie. And the year after that, Powder hired me as their editor. So then I moved out to California. And all, and all the while are you Doing putting out the Drake? Once a year. Okay, one, yeah. one issue a year. I shouldn't say... Oh, because the second issue was in 99. That was my first year in Steamboat. Didn't do one in 2000. Okay. Because I was broke. So, yeah. uh, But then it worked well with the ski magazines because we were pretty much done by the end of January. Um, and so I just put out that one spring issue for seven years until I left Powder in 2007. And then I took it to twice a year, 2007, 2008. Three times a year, 2009, 2010, uh-huh. and then went to quarterly in 2011. It's been that ever since. Yeah, because I remember it being something that you know wasn't out that often. Right. And then, yeah, I guess I never really paid attention, but I, I've, I've noticed that I'm seeing the Drake everywhere now. When did you leave Potter? Uh, in spring of 2007. Okay, so that was that a real big decision for you to be like, I'm going to leave no, Potter? No, it was no. It was a, one of the easiest decisions. <laughs> it took a while for... Um, I loved Powder. I could not turn down the job of becoming editor of that magazine. But it's in Southern California. Yeah. And it was not a place. So I worked really, really hard at it. And I still have a great relationship with them and write for that magazine. But I had one foot out the door from day one in there. And they knew it. It was There's no way I was going to stay living down there. I was only going to stay for two years. But so there was a lot of other magazines there, snowboarder, skateboarder, both of the surfing titles. And there was a guy that was running, he was the editorial director overall. There's 16 of these titles. And after that second year, he, his name was Steve Hawk, and he went to our publisher and asked if I could take over the non-board sports. Tony Hawk's brother. Yeah, Hawk's so, a pretty big name to exactly. skate. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And uh, super, super good dude. So he, I, I then became the editorial director that last year of bike, canoe and kayak, powder, and yeah, because that was it. Those three. Did you have any oh. like dependents or anything? Or are you are you just working? No. So you really don't need to make a crazy income. No, you live in Southern California, though. I mean, it wasn't that much money. It's, I don't know, 50, 60 grand or something like that, but that doesn't go anywhere down there. <laughs> like, right. it's not good money there. It would have been, you know, other places. Yeah. But it was, uh, it was great experience. From a fishing standpoint, I made a lot of runs down to Baja. That was my escape, and it was fantastic. Like, it, mm-hmm. just before a lot of the real violence was, or maybe it was taking place, but at least people didn't know about it. And, yeah. And fish that northern third of the Sea of Cortez a lot, sit on top kayaks, and just a super cool, nobody was over there, still probably aren't. I mean, just people talk about Baja, and they always talk about down far south where the rooster fish are and this and that, but all the surfers are on the coast side. Mm-hmm. So this is inside the northern third of that peninsula, and it was, I never saw anyone. I mean... Anyway, there was like Baja 500 or, you know, bikers and things like that. But as far as the fishing goes, 
It was just fantastic. And I would get 10, 12 different species. Wouldn't even know what they were. Like, look them up at a book, you know, and two or three of them would be over 10 pounds. Were you publishing this stuff in the Drake? No, no, no. This was were just... Were you like, this has got to stay quiet? This got to be oh, God, no. I, I think people, even if they're aware that, that it's down there, I mean, it, it, what made it so crazy is that there was not anybody there, and I'm sitting a couple hundred miles from the most populated half of the most populated state in the country, but they're not going to make... It's like a thousand-mile really slow, really brutal gravel road. I mean, the road that goes down to that part of Baja from Calexico and Mexico is, it looks like you're pulling into someone's driveway. Did and it goes for like Calexico? <laughs> Whatever, there's two. <laughs> it is. There's like these two little towns, right? Oh, oh, I thought you were like combining Mexico That's and what California. They do, right? uh, they really I don't do remember which one's which, but okay. there's a Calexico <laughs> on one side and a Mexicali or something like on the other side. Okay. I think that's where that drinking game comes from. But okay. there actually are towns right there, right, sit on the border. Yeah. And you go down that route to get there. And it's really cool, but you've got to be not in a hurry. And it's a just imagine the worst road you ever, they don't do anything with it. But you have access to that, some crazy good fishing. So I got that out of the out of Southern California, if nothing else. I spent some time up fishing. I mean, I, like any fisherman, as soon as you move somewhere, you're just looking around, trying, what's here? Oh, the Pacific Ocean's right there. So I did a lot of sit-on-top kayak and stuff, and hiked up into um, the Sierras. But that was, powder was a, a full-time gig, very yeah, much. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I had so nine you, people that work for me, and I'm not good at managing oh. myself, much less other people. <laughs> So you're in the office, you're making a living. Yeah. Let's dive right into the Drake here. Uh, okay. Okay. So your vision is that you want to have talented writers, you want to give people a platform, uh, or talented writers who maybe don't have that platform. Yes. What else did you have in mind? I, I know this was not a, that you wanted to make a lot of money. So what was your real goal with it? Well, the goal was just to be able to survive at first. I mean, and it still is, really. I mean, I, this is it's a dream job, but it, I never thought really that it would that I'd be able to make it like that yeah um, i remember but, people saying oh you know tom lives in his the basement of his you know <laughs> right. mom's house and he's printing magazines and i was like who is this person well i did do it out of the house for a while a funny story on that um so my girlfriend's name is also april and uh we lived in fort collins at uh we've been together about 10 years and we lived up in fort collins and some guy one day looked up the drake's address and drove from Denver up to the Drake office. Oh, no. Well, that's our house. Like, we're, I was operating out of the house. And she shows up. She's, like, walking around in her pajamas or whatever and shows up at the house and it just knocks on the door. Is this Drake? <laughs> and she's like, no, there's, what? Like, oh, I just drove up. He tells her the story. And then he sees Trask sitting in the house. He's like, I'm sorry, but could you take a picture of me with Trask? With Trask. Is that Trask from the magazine? She's like, yeah, it's just so weird. <laughs> so weird. But there's my working out of the house. But don't story. you still work? I mean, do you work in an office now? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a house. It's a little house that yeah. I bought. If I owned a magazine, I wouldn't be in that. Right. I'd be working out of my house in my no. pajamas all day long. Exactly. But you kind of, there is something to be, you know, like having an at least having to get up and go. I, I write from the house, but there's there's no way I was going to have that be like that. You need to have a separate thing. So yeah. I bought a little house in Denver for that purpose, uh, okay. but also for the purpose of having a three car garage that holds boats because right. we don't have a big enough garage. Do you right. find that you need some place that you can shut down? I know that it takes me an average of twenty minutes. So if I'm writing and someone interrupts me mm-hmm. at home, which yes. happens often, right? It takes me forever to get back into the grind. Yes. Does having an office help that? It it does, but not as much as shutting off the internet. 
if I'm writing uh-huh. and just writing, it keeps you from getting sucked into those rabbit holes. And sometimes I'll just do it on pad and paper for that reason. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, there's just so many distractions, and I'm as bad as anybody once you start. Oh, well, uh, suddenly I do care what that childhood actress <laughs> looks like, but you know, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Whatever that clickbait is, but it's like, okay, so uh, yes, it does help to have some separate place. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's also nice to to have a change of it. Like I'll go to a coffee shop sometimes and and sit there and and writing. I'm talking about, not yeah, yeah, change mostly. of environment. Yeah, yeah. Time. What about yeah. time of day? Do you find that you write better at night than you do in the day? Uh, no, even though I end up doing a lot of it, it yeah. I, I think early in the morning is still is still better for me. I also feel like when it comes to a trip or something like that, that it's good to just write a bunch of stuff down on the flight home, you know, so you don't forget the details. Why you're not? I'm not fine tuning at that point, but I do a lot of rewriting, <laughs> you know, um, and and the actual writing and editing. I still really really love that part of the job. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it's ten fifty percent of my time, you know, because mm. you're also trying to run a business. But I think that, you know, people would say, and I thought you hear the same thing about guiding, that, oh, I don't want to do what I love to do for work. <laughs> Your because face right that's now just, is so funny. <laughs> like, I mean, because you hear that a lot. Sometimes it's just an excuse, and other times it's, it did become true with guiding. Mm-hmm. But I was 90 out of 100 days or something like that, so you're just going to get burnt out on it. But I've never, I've never felt that way with the Drake. Okay, so like, the Drake. Yes. The magazine that says yeah. $5, $10 for bait right, fishermen. Right. It it's pretty clear to me that you had always had the intention of having the Drake be a way to kind of stir people. Did you mean for it to be such a provocative magazine? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, um I liked those types. I mean, there's a lot of magazines that influenced me at the time. Powder was a huge one. It was modeled largely after that in terms of the skill set of the reader. I didn't feel like, even though you can learn a lot by reading the Drake, it was not an instructional fly fishing man. And even that was unheard of, like at the time, other than Gray's or whatever. It was like, why else would you publish a vertical title if you're not telling people how to do it? <laughs> yeah. But the the humor and stuff that was out there at that time, Maxim was a pretty popular magazine. Oh, right. Even just the photo captions. I loved The Onion. I loved... Humor is hard, but I knew that was one other way to be different. Um, was the industry starting to wear on you at that point? I wasn't even in the industry, really. You I was don't think so? Dieting. No, I, did, I, didn't ever, I didn't look at that You had a all. magazine and you didn't feel like you were in the industry? Yeah, I felt like I was in the industry, but I... I I also felt like it was important to not be too in the industry. If that may, I mean, the, the, the magazine was kind of started in part to make fun of the industry. The, well, that's I mean, what I'm wondering. What right. about advertisements? Did you, were you at that point? Were you getting your money back? I'm not even going to say making money off of. Just were you getting your money back by selling the magazine or by getting advertisers? Both. And this wasn't by design, but I think that is a big. That became a big difference between the Drake and most of the other magazines that are out there. And this is one of the other things I learned by working at these other magazines. They were ninety nine percent advertising revenue, yeah, which is great until you can't get any more advertisers. Mm-hmm. But the magazines at that level, Skiing Magazine was six hundred thousand circulation. I mean, just enormous. Powder wasn't near that, but Skiing Magazine, we would have these big 
meeting someone fly out from New York and talk about what sells on a newsstand, and they'd always try to come up with some sort of composite reader, you know, that it's going to like this magazine, and this is what's going to make it move off the newsstand, and just so much debate over it. And I'm sitting there listening to it, like, we're selling 8,000, maybe 6,000 of these off the newsstand, and we're sending half a million out to subscribers. Who cares what the newsstand look like? Like, just make it look cool, right? It was yeah. such a small percentage of it because they just didn't care. And I saw that model fail in 07, 08, when, when those magazines really went under the first time around, whereas Powder did well. They hung in there because those people ski. They weren't going to just pick up sailing the next month. So I, I felt like, I mean, at that time, I'm, I'm trying to go to three times a year and grow a magazine in fall of 2008 when most of them were done. And it, yeah. and, but people, a lot of advertisers were looking for something different, too, and, mm-hmm. they, and they, they got that with, uh, I'll say. with, with the Drake. But, but it, from the start, though, it was, uh, um, I aimed for almost a 50-50 split. Revenue wise, and it's it is more advertising now, but but not much. Fly shops were great; they've always sold well at fly shops. Barnes Noble, places where I had to get at least fifty percent sell through at a time when thirty percent was considered good. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a big publishing company; I can't afford to sell one out of ten, and that's what a lot of these magazines were doing. And then they gave so many subscriptions away. Oh, big time! I mean, the, the skiing magazine at its peak. You could go to a Warren Miller movie, buy an Obermeyer ski jacket, buy a Vail ski pass, and you'd get three copies of Skiing Magazine on your doorstep. And that's why these advertising companies came back to these big magazines and made them, they changed the model for what counted as a subscriber. Because all three of those were numbers that advertisers were being told were three different people. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, yeah. And so they, they cut out certain categories of distribution that were always kind of a joke. The box of magazines that shows up at every hotel, dentist office, mm. all that kind of stuff. Those are not engaged readers. That's the print version of buying your Instagram followers or whatever. You yeah. know what I mean? It's just a number to throw out there. But they weren't engaged. Somebody going in and buying a magazine in a flash shop, engaged. Right. right. And, and I believe in the newsstand for that reason. That's just the pure... Free market. Somebody walking up to a newsstand and picking my magazine over all those ones that are there and paying money to get it. And that is still a big difference between that and all the other ways that things are sold now or all marketers are trying to figure out social media. It's the Wild West, right? Nobody knows really how it works on Facebook and how. And people will say, oh man, print, that must be a struggle. And it's like, it is, but. I have real numbers that I don't make up. This is how many magazines were paid for by this many people this month. They didn't get a discount on their subscription. They didn't get it free in a corner out of the box. I went up and paid good money for it, took it home. And, and to a certain degree, marketers have always valued subscribers more. Well, that, this is a real dedicated person because they're a subscriber as opposed to buying off the newsstand. Well, if you're getting that subscription for airline miles or some other, they may not actually be. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like someone that goes in and buys it at a fly shop is probably 
equally or more as someone who subscribed to it. Some people just use it as an excuse to go to the flash app. Yeah. And then buy other stuff. <laughs> right, no doubt. Um, well, you know, you t- I just had a little bit of a revelation there because I asked you if you were in the industry and, you know, or, you know, back then, right. you didn't think you were in the industry. Mm-hmm. But then you're selling to advertisers. So obviously you're in the industry. But then I realized, ah, the Drake is in the industry. You don't identify yourself as the Drake. I do. I totally identify you, the Drake and, and you as being one and the same. Or I used to. Not, not as much now, you know, but, uh, I think for a long time people would be like, oh, you know, Tom Bai and the Drake. That's kind of, that's risky though. I mean, people, when they say that to me, they mean it as a compliment and I appreciate that, but that's not something you can sell. No. It's extremely, I think it's extremely risky. Separate. It also, I think I'm a good writer, but it doesn't matter how good of a writer you are, the same voice gets tired. You have to be able to have other voices in there and and let those writers keep their voice. Right. You know, and I and I think so from from that side, like from a business perspective, if I ever reach a point where I feel like selling the Drake, that would be my argument. Like I've created good departments in the magazine <clears throat> that people who are passionate about fly fishing or good at editing could run and take. They'd put their own twists on it. Look, I do think it would be, obviously, it's a horrible decision to make a magazine that's based around you. Because it's, right. it's not what it is. I mean, you have so many talented... You you started the magazine so that you could have all these talented contributors. So why would it... It doesn't make any sense for right. it to be you. But, you know, you hear people say that. So has that been a real issue for you? And if it has been, how have you handled it? Separating your brand or yourself from the Drake brand? Well, I guess part of it is I don't give two shits about my brand. I don't have a Tom by brand. That is not value to me at all. I don't have a Facebook page. I mean, I do, but I don't have an Instagram page. I don't know. None of that stuff matters to me. I'll just, but on a personal level, it's, I have a lot of other interests, you know? Uh, I mean, fly fishing is my most favorite thing to do. And if I randomly meet a person and they aren't into fly fishing or maybe college football or a few other things, I won't be as excited maybe to have a conversation, but I I feel like um, you need to have, and this isn't just in the fly fishing industry. I felt the same way in, when I was in the ski industry, I was in the paddle. I mean, this is all the outdoor industry. I'm also in the magazine industry. Keep up, but don't let that be your only. No matter how much I love fly fishing, if I'm having a conversation with someone and that's all they can talk about, I'm going to be bored pretty quickly. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> so that that has something to do with it. Yeah. And I, I, I'm certainly in the industry now. I, 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 but I try to keep that edge. You know, I I've been critical at times of AFTA or of you know, and you you have a voice for that, and it's a lot easier to do if you're not sitting on their board or if you're not too. Particularly, I mean, I just there's a certain editorial, call it editorial integrity, call it whatever you want, but it's mm-hmm. um, not to say I would never serve in that capacity or whatever. But it's just uh, it's just important, I think. To and I'm not just saying that about after any like I've been asked on other conservation boards and things like that, and I just don't know if as a writer, well, what happens if they do something like you know that yep. sort of thing. So I just feel like if if to to really do the reporting editorial sort of stuff well, you should 
it's okay to keep a little bit of a distance. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's fantastic. And, and a lot of the reason why I'm asking is because I remember when I used to read things that would get my hackles up, like on the internet forum, I would be like, Tom, this is Tom. And you know, when you and I would go head to head and granted, yeah. you are a fantastic person to debate with because you're very well spoken <laughs> and you write so well and you make fantastic points. Uh, Those guys were tough <laughs> to defend though. But, I, you, but you know, for all of that aside though, I remember, you know, you made it very clear to me, very professionally, that's not, that is not me. You know what I mean? It's not even the Drake. That is, that is its own thing. And that was really the first time I sat back and went, you know what? He's right. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say it's not necessarily indicative of the magazine or, or related to the magazine, but it was definitely my first moment of going, Tom is not the Drake. Right. He, right. he owns the Drake, but that's its own beast. The website is its own beast. The Drake message board was definitely its own. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think those, the heyday of that is probably 10 years past now. There's still a lot of guys on there who are immature and jerks and all those sorts of, I mean, but, and I would hear, you were far from the only person that I would oh, know, I know. these comments from. And they would, yeah, I could see them coming from across the room and a lot, a lot of them would start in on me like at a consumer show and I can't believe the language that you let take place. <laughs> yeah. And they'd rattle off these things and eventually I'd be like, you seem to know an awful lot about this message board that you telling me how much you hate. I mean, I, I never spent a lot of time there. And they, I mean, I, I try to go on there now. I'd get beat up just like anybody else. Well, I saw that actually yeah. when I when I, I mean, did used to frequent, and I made, <laughs> I made some buddies off the drink. So you know what I mean. Well, there's some very 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 good people up there, and they have their own little identity and stuff like that. And people yeah. have asked me. I mean, I've never put ads on it. I've never done anything. That's just their community. They created it, and uh, and there's been I don't quite know how to say it. There, there's definitely been some moments on that board or things that have happened related to it that have been negative, your case being one of them. And I'm sorry about that. No, that's you but, but you don't have to be. And that's the whole point is I want you to be able to make it very clear that that's not you. Right. But it's bad enough. I People, why, why don't you shut down? You don't get any money from it. You don't do this. You don't do that. But then I'll get the calls too from the dad whose son got a job at the fly shop because of somebody he met on the message board. These guys do fundraisers. Uh, Miles Nolte writes a book. Miles Nolte, that book was written. People don't even know. I mean, <laughs> my, my favorite fishing book. I had him on the show and we talked right. about it. It's the coolest thing. I get a call from Outside Magazine asking if I am aware that this guy is who put. It was like the first book ever written on a website, and it's going to turn into a book. Like, yeah, that's that's my website. <laughs> yes, I'm aware of it. <laughs> Thanks, so. though. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, and just a great, wow, that whole situation is such a great start. So it's like cool. sneaking out in the outhouse to do, you know, whatever. Yeah. But that was, uh, those are the sorts of things that were, were taking place. And we had, um, I'm trying to decide whether I want to tell the story or not, but I'm going to, and you can decide whether or not you keep it or not. All right, I'm probably going to keep it. Um, a man uh, killed himself. Oh, oh and announced no. it on the Drake Message Board. This was year. This was ten years ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. I did not know that. Uh, crazy situation. Um, and I saw it on. I mean, I just opened up the message board, and it was a post of um, his notice in the in the in the newspaper in Montana, and somebody just said. Please tell me this is some sort of joke, or what? And uh, and it wasn't. That was his community. It's a long 
deeper story, but the the point I'm making is that the the people who are friends with him on that board started a college fund for his son, and they they do things like that. I get calls for people that are they have to go to rehab, they're going to jail, and that community does some really amazing things that you wouldn't think about if you only heard bad stories that they were involved with. You know, so that's why I don't. That's why I don't take it down. That's why I, I don't try to make money off it, write stories about it. So, I mean, th- these guys, they've had Drake bakes, these get-togethers yeah, yeah. for years. Like the, you know, and granted, there's some of those are good and some of those are bad. I get the call, are you this publisher? Well, yeah, the guy that organized your Drake bake, he's in jail down here in Louisiana. So, <laughs> but I mean, there's also advertisers that would come up and be like, you know what? I hate when those guys tear our new rod apart but i love it when they're talking about the other guy yeah <laughs> or those sorts of so they were there was a uh, very influential crowd on there and and the image was these guys sitting in their grandma's basement you know neckbeard types right yeah then they then you see a photo from one of these drake bakes and there's like well that's fourteen sixty thousand dollar flat skiffs so I don't think that's true. No. Or whatever. No, I've met actually some of those guys in real life and they're not yet. No. A lot of them are are super cool. Yeah. Some of them I'd like to punch in the face, but some of them are really cool. And some of them have are douchey on there and they're actually super nice guys. Yeah. That's just their whole. I find it's all in good fun. It's, if you really look at it now and I actually really enjoyed taking the piss for a while, I probably (laughs) professionally wouldn't, wouldn't do it now, but I always kind of giggled thinking to myself, you know, you guys have no idea you're dealing with somebody here who's got the same sense of humor. But they less love the engagement. Yeah. But, and that's why I can't do it now. Like (laughs) I can't, and I can't even look at the post now just because I don't want to get sucked into it. So I don't know what goes on on there now. Right. I'm sure it's hilarious, but I just always thought it was, I think it's probably tamed down. I mean, I don't know. I I don't go on there either, to tell you the truth. But uh, but it does get it is it is fun. Anyway, what were you going to say? Well, just you know those types of characters, right? They became known for doing that. Well, then anytime somebody sees a photo, they go to him and be like, "Hey, this needs him to go." So again, my April, she has a discussion. She used to work for the marketing group for the representative ski industry, and they're trying to decide about whether or not to have a new website. Should we? I have a message board. Oh, my boyfriend has a message. This is in a group of like no. eight people. Yeah. And April, <laughs> April, I had just driven back to Ohio <laughs> and we stopped. We love the Americana goofy stuff, right? So there's a, it was a giant ketchup bottle and she's leaning on it in the picture. Well, you can imagine <laughs> what they did to the ketchup bottle. Oh, for sure. This comes up yeah. in front of this whole, <laughs> I mean, she has a great sense of humor and laugh about it, but it was still like, that's the sort of thing what maybe the Drake missed board would not be but, where you want to But be. actually, I, I forgot to tell you this. Oh, oh, I actually thank you, the guys on your board. This is my personal thank you. I used your, your board, your forum. When I was getting married to Charles, we, we actually couldn't prove we were married. I pay all the bills in Canada. He pays all the Australian bills. Like we're both very independent. We still don't have a joint account. We have a baby, but we still don't right. have joint accounts. I right, pay right. for my shit. He pays for his. Right. And so we actually found that we couldn't prove we were married. No, like what? we could prove it, we had a marriage certificate, okay, and right. people would be like, "No, no, we know that they're married." But we actually, it was a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. So I was able to take the the forum because right. I think when I was engaged, <laughs> they all of Big course news. had something to say, right. whatever, right? But there's like a however many page thread, and I sent that to my lawyer, and the lawyer submitted it to immigration, That's hilarious. and it helped me get my it helped me to pass through to get my visa in Australia to yeah. prove that I was actually married. Wow. Yeah. 
Look at the things those guys. I'm telling you, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> the high point. Okay. So now let's talk about the next the next thing that I've okay. always wondered about, and I think you'll have a really good answer. So I'm going to ask you. Okay. Um, page six chicks. Yes. What's the deal with that? At the time I started the magazine, I felt like women are getting ignored. Period. And and at the time you started the magazine, they really were. And, but yeah. but in Jackson, there was lots of. I mean, it, it wasn't just women. It was minorities, young anybody. I. I the people who I went out and fished with every day were not getting represented. And uh, I know you've had Lorianne on the show. Other, I mean, it, it wasn't new in Jackson. I just felt like the industry was ignoring it, you know? And eventually I took the chicks off, but the fact is I just wanted to show women fly fishers in an authentic way, not holding a fish, wearing a bikini, having a, you know... And that's what I had seen, like Florida sportsmen or whatever, all these sorts of, well, not Florida sportsmen, but you know what I mean, the mm-hmm. ones that like every cover would have. Like what I see walking around at ICAST? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. and, but you just, there are, the point was that there's authentic fly fishers out there. And mm-hmm. if you look through the roster, including yourself, that's who's been on those pages. And uh, occasionally I would get someone to be like, oh, that's, Sexist. What about putting dudes up there? And uh, I said, well, they they come from women. That's who sends them to me ninety percent of the time. So, and I think if you look through the roster, other than maybe Sherman's wife once or something, I don't, there's never been a bikini shot or anything. It's not what it's for. Well, so that that's not the, the focal point. It never right. has been the focal right. point. Right, right. But I always wondered if you got grief on that. And uh, not too much. No. I mean, I uh, like I said, maybe the the term chicks, you know. But other than that. And you've seen from the very beginning, women writers, women photographers, women stories. I mean, it's just a, it just seemed a very natural progression to just show what's actually being done. It was a lot of the same mindset that TGR had when they started. You know, they were filming for Warren Miller. Warren Miller wasn't showing the cliffs they were actually skiing. It was always something easier. And I was like, you don't need, you don't need to have gratuitous female angler shots. No. They're out there actually doing it, like guiding here yeah. in Jackson every <laughs> single day. Yeah. I uh, actually dated Morrison Sims for a while, who's John Sims's daughter. Oh. And she was one of a handful of guides that were up in that upper river. And it was just, uh, including over in Idaho, they didn't just participate. They were guides and they were leading like Lorianne. And yeah. Said. And you're around that. And I just never really got it. And 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 to to their credit, TU and some of those other groups have done a much better job now, you know. But I have to say, even that story that came out in the New York Times, and I know John, he had written for me. <laughs> We're just talking about this interview before you. Oh, you were. Mm-hmm. I just uh, and I read that first sentence. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, run through it. That has to be your. You have to go back 26 years, or whatever, to even. And she was hooked. And uh, I know you know. I'm, Good friends with Kate and Justin do, and we've had this discussion a number of times. And it's just, it was just so low hanging fruit. Like it just doesn't. It'll be right when you can stop having to have those articles at all. And the fact that it was kind of like 
passed around. And I had, this is a great story. I was like, it kind of sucks. Uh, Sorry, gonna, John. But. Uh, no, that's all right. And, I'll, you know, and, and I'm going to be very careful here because I don't want to upset anybody. Well, no, fuck it. Like, <laughs> look, uh, I was misquoted in that. Right. I never said that. He said something about me saying women are cupcakes and waiters. <laughs> that's not cool. I, I was interviewed in 60 Minutes and Bill Whitaker said to me, right. people refer to you as a cupcake in waiters. Right. I remember that. That's yeah. a major misquote. Uh, to yeah. put in the New York Times, I've said that when I spent an hour on the phone having what I felt was actually a really forward-thinking conversation about women in the sport, and I know I said a lot of things, and a lot right. of if you want a controversy, like I, I'm sure I would have said a few things, but to take a, of all, all the things I said to take a quote that I didn't even say to refer to woman as being an icy sugar cake. Like, it's also what? just unprofessional. Like get your own quotes. You can't take somebody else because who knows whether you said it or not. You know. So I, fr- I so frustrating. Right. But yes, I, it's just it's still even today not being done right. The page six though, that's all it was. That's all it was. Okay. No, moving, that's, moving, all, that's all it's ever been. Let's move forward. Okay. Um F three T. Did you start that? Uh no. No. Um, that's the most honest way to say is not really, I guess. I mean, I, I had the first tour before it was called that when AEG guys. Oh yeah, of course. AEG had it. Right. Right. But that first tour was basically the first, uh, video awards, which was 12 years ago, plus a clip from feeding time. (laughs) (laughs) So there was, but, but it wasn't like, uh, I just, I had a job of powder. I had no, I, I had taken feeding time around on tour or whatever. It was like seven or eight different stops in mountain towns and stuff. But after that first show in 2006, the tour started that next year, but it didn't go that well. I mean, there was a, a few good stops, but those guys just didn't have what Chris and Doug have running now as far as just the logistics of being, and they had worked for Warren Miller and the film too. So they knew how to, Make one of these tours, and it was always fine tunes, but they they knew how to make it profitable and keep it organized and stuff like that. And that's mm-hmm. what and the, all those AG guys, I love them, and they'll be the first to admit it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Do you uh, know that when I stayed at Kate and Justin's place one night, when all of the whatever the drama was? Oh yes. Um, the that I left, and Kate right. and Justin were like, "Oh God, April really stinks." We were in Oregon. <laughs> yeah. She really stinks. Like she's left this horrible smell on her mattress. Those AEG bastards had. Opened up at the mattress I was sleeping on, right. obviously before I'd gotten there. Sure, sure. And they had sewn in a fish and, you know, given the mattress back to Justin and Kate. And so yeah. that, they, that, like, who does that? But it, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my There's one a experience whole with AG Media. story about those people that were, because at that time, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And, the, and uh, what they, what they went through when they went out and got their new investor prior to these guys. So there was a window of time there. And when the AEG guys had somebody come in and invest, it was a it was a relative. Things went south in a hurry, right? Yeah. And so that is um, that night in the December thirty first, <laughs> whenever they send out the big AEG is disbanding. Yeah. You know? And then that's when Chris and Doug came to me and asked if I wanted to be involved, and I was. Uh, okay. So yeah, how was the Drake involved? So um, well, I was uh, part owner like that first. Year. So that Tom By or the Drake or uh, Tom, uh, yeah, both. I mean, it was uh, the, the AEG guys had always been that first year after the after the first video awards. Fly Rod and Reel was the sponsor. Like they they came up to me at the show and somebody from Fly Rod and Reel, what are you gonna do with this? What are you gonna do with that first show? Is really fun. People never seen yeah 
you know, these ten is in Denver is a time and, and, oh, and the we had energy was running so down the mat. You yes, know, it was yes. just like crazy. And yet, Arabiati and these—I mean, people were twenty-three <laughs> years old, right? And yeah, Travis and Ben, everything was just—it was. It was in the day where when awesome. a fish jumped and you caught that on camera, right. it was like cheering through the crowd. Oh, totally huge! And if you could get the hookup shot, oh my god! And it was probably caught on like a camera phone. Yeah, because there were no cameramen. You <laughs> right. were fishing, and it, it. usually you pulled out your camera when you were already hooked up. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So that, so this is how that happened. So. I was at Powder. I was doing my annual issue of the Drake. That was 2006. And uh, there was the Surfer Video Awards. And there was Powder Video Awards. And Powder Video Awards was a big deal. And I said, maybe it's time. We should, fly fishing should have this. So I put a full page ad in that Drake in 2006 asking for uh, submissions. And it was going to be the five minutes of fly fishing video awards. And I needed 10 of them. And that was the plan. Problem was, only three existed, and I'd been one of them. And there was no, I had no idea. And that was like May. The trade show was then in September, and by September, I had, that's how I met Travis and, 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 and all those people, the AEG guys had been down in Iceland um, with Mikey Weir, and yeah. Todd Moan had, I mean, a, a lot of the people that were still in it, but those, that, that very first year, we came up with, 10 films, but it wasn't easy. No. <laughs> I mean, it was, I think one was shot on like a flip phone, maybe that tarpon jump with the little mm-hmm. tongue <laughs> down there, but it was just a really, really fun event. So then I had that at the, at the show and that, this guy from Flower and Real came up to me and, um, I think I can say this now, A, Flower and Real is, uh, at the time there was the big four, right? Fly Rod and Real, Fly Fisherman, Fly, and, uh, American Angle, I guess, Fly, um, fly fishing out of port. Those were like the big four print. And he came up to me and asked what I was going to do with this show. And uh, I'm like, what do you mean you're going to do? Just like, well, what are you going to do? You can take us out. I mean, he's just so like really kind of aggressive. And I was like, nothing, dude. It was just a party. I, I have a job at Powder Magazine. I just, and it was, but he just couldn't believe it. He was basically asking if he could just take it. He goes, well, we need to partner up. We need to partner up. You get that a lot. I was like, I don't even know what you're, what are you asking me to do? Well, it would give you a chance to write on the coat sleeves of a bigger publisher. You're like, <laughs> this is him telling me this. And one of my friends was in the boot, and he said to him, he goes, you don't look like the one who's trying to write coattails here, or what it made some fun going like that. But I really didn't care. I, I mean, I didn't make the films. You know, I was like, sure, if you can go, you go talk to these AG guys or whatever. And so that's how that first tour happened. So, oh, cool. Okay. So I was involved in that. It was videos from the award show, but I was at the time and, and continue to be great friends with all those AG guys. And then I was involved the first year with the modern tour, but then just, I was also a part owner in Confluence when that launched. Oh, okay. But I was, I, I'm a writer, editor, and I did both those for a year and then uh, it wasn't for me. You know, and been, uh, good friends with all of them, but just wasn't where I wanted to put my energy, time and energy. I'm much better at starting things like that or helping start than I am at keeping them going. That's a little fair. Yeah. So after he is not owned by the Drake? Nope. No. Okay. Just those, just those two. It never was just the Drake. It, we kept on, it was like the Drake fly fishing tour, you know, and then the next year a Drake magazine production and we started doing the Stonefly, which is their, you know, their annual that goes out mm-hmm. with it. But now you guys do the award show. Yep. Always done the award show. And that's just all I just wanted to keep 
And just for people who aren't, because iCast is an industry show, so people who are not in the industry maybe don't know what I'm talking about. Can you just let them know what what happened last night? About 10 years, it went on as the five minutes of fly fishing, and then there became enough good films that you could do it and make it like the Oscars of fly fishing. It was that format of just me going in, we take a dozen categories, not that much anymore, eight or nine categories, and I just take the highlight clips from all of the best films that were made throughout the year and make an hour-long show, which makes it much, much better than the 10 minutes of fly fishing. I mean, the five minutes of fly fishing was usually 30 seconds of fly fishing. (laughs) Four and a half minutes of bad stuff. But it was, uh, so that's what it is now. And it's always been open to the public and it moves back to Denver in fall of 19, which is where it started. So it's very exciting. It's very exciting. I cannot wait to And I can walk to the trade show, so that's going to make it. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) So moving forward with Drake, what's your ultimate plan? I mean, it'd be nice to sell it at some point, um, but I still very much enjoyed doing it, you know? And uh, I've had a couple offers over the years, but it's always just some rich dude that doesn't know anything about it, just wants to own a fly fishing magazine. That does, for you to sell, that doesn't sound good to you? I'm not going to sell it to give myself a job working for somebody else. Oh, would you want to continue to work for the magazine? No, but most most arrangements would probably entail some yeah. sort of couple of years being spent, you know. It does. And, uh, and I've worked at Time, Inc. and Prime Media, which owned Powder at the time, were two of the biggest publishing houses on earth. I've seen what happens with the buying and selling of, and that's just, I mean, if I have to, maybe that's a route that I could go, but I'd much rather have it be Somebody that's working with, say, Jeff or Elliot or people who are already, you know, involved or that just care and know about writing and editing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just going to be gone. Like the, the, mm-hmm. it will, it will just disappear. Yeah, and, and I've seen. Yeah, you know, there's always people coming into those magazines trying to get them to buy some other, you know, title or whatever. And it's uh, Drake's not a big money maker, you know. But if a bigger company was to buy it, then that's how you. You don't have to pay another designer. You don't have to pay. They can go out and do that. I just don't know if it work. It would have to be the, the right mix. If not, then I just stop it sometimes. But what would you do? <laughs> what like what is your backup plan? I definitely have some other things I'd like to do. Some of it is writing, but I, I mean, I've been asked about doing books. I, I get people that will call. Let's do best of the Drake book. Why would I do that with someone else? Like, yeah, I, do it yourself, yeah, right? Yeah. So, I mean, but there are other things I'd be interested in in writing. Other things maybe I'd be interested in doing. But I, I can't really pitch myself fishing a lot more than I do right now. I really enjoy the writing and editing, but I I do feel like I have quite a few other goals for the magazine that I haven't reached. None of which are financial. I mean, it's just about the kinds of writing and reporting that we're able to do sometimes. And uh, and I still feel like that can be a lot better. You have a real knack for investigative journalism. Uh, I really like it. I mean, that's one of the things that would keep me going. Past why I wouldn't sell a magazine? Because I love that stuff. And it's really, really important, and it's more and more rare as a skill. But I think this country has seen over the last couple of years the value of reporting and you can see it now with uh no matter what your political views are from washington post new york times wall street journal they're all making money and they're 
that people are paying to read their reporting. And they have paywalls up. They have they invest in good reporting. Sadly, that's a small pool at the top that really does it, but they really do it well. And you, and you see it, movies like Spotlight and stories it's just people know would never, ever have gotten out there. And the, the, the whole Me Too movement, all of the... I know you say you don't want to talk too much about women's, but I mean, it was sure. the reporting mm-hmm. done that that exposed those guys. You know, it was people sticking on a story for months or sometimes years. And you look at The New Yorker and and really great long-form journalism. And even if I don't care about the subject, I will read that in-depth reporting over... If I need a break, I'll read fiction or just, you know, feel like a summer read or something like that. But that's, that's the kind of writing I really, really like to do, and it's the kind of writing I like to read. Well, you're no dummy. You're, they've published about you in Forbes. I've read your investigative journalism. It's excellent. <laughs> oh, that for, that story about Forbes. I was going to yeah. say the message board is on Forbes, too. No, that was a different... <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and I was telling Jeff yesterday, uh, I think you're a fantastic editor. So well, thank I'm you. very, very interested to see what you have in your future. So I'll be watching. Well, thank you so much, April, for having me on. I really you appreciate bet. it. Is there anything you'd like to add or ask me? Uh, no, probably just mention that we do have our own podcast, and Elliot does a great job of it. And he yeah. loves you, and he oh. thinks you do a really good job, <laughs> and, and you really do. You're very professional sounding, and he looks up to you and thinks it's cool. And he he does you. his he has his own style. I obviously. enjoy. No, I really enjoy his style. I listened to the one that he did with Jeremy Wade. Yes, he, like, yeah. but he, it's different. He's yeah, he's got like a really cool feel. Have you ever listened to Serial podcast? I have, and. I think he'd be the first to admit that he's influenced by his older brother who's with Radiolab out of uh, Chicago. Uh, there you go. I yeah. see it. I uh, see it. And he's very much into like the storytelling, brings in a lot of mm. reporting. He can do a lot, but just uses music well and does all that sort of stuff. And now, he has a very unique format, and he's lovable. He's so lovable. <laughs> he is, just lovable with constant like, cutie. Where is his heart on his sleeve? He's so cute. <laughs> so yeah, so check out, uh, check out the Drake podcast as well. We've got a show podcast love all around. And um, thanks again. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 